Hello and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And tonight, uh, we're we're going to talk about some small projects we've been working on that just didn't have enough oomph for their own whole show. So basically, tonight is going to be kind of like an extended week of rev week in review chat, but um, but it'll be pretty fun. So, um, sorry, I'm getting some some feed. Uh, technical feedback from the producer over here. So, screeching tires. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> screeching tires. Uh, anyway, um, welcome, welcome, guys. Hi, Colin. Welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Um, so tonight, before we get into our extended week in review, let's talk about. Our actual week in review. How was your week? Uh, busy, blur, doing, working on interfaces for my product, doing fair amount of database consulting. Um, also did a lot of database upgrades as well. And like I talked about in the, um, was it building a redundant infrastructure on the cheap? It was a few episodes ago. Mm -hmm. So where I was using Postgres and allowing the Postgres client, so your app server that talks to Postgres, so the Postgres client that resides on the app servers, right. allowing that to, to determine which database server is the master. So you can basically specify if you, well, imagine you have two databases, a primary and a replica or two replicas, however many replicas you want. Right. You basically tell the client in a connection string all the different hosts and ports that a available database is at. And you can tell it through this target session adders parameter to you choose or you talk to only the primary or you talk to only the replica. And I was kind of using that halfway, but I actually transitioned to using it all the way. And for doing my database upgrades that I needed to do, it made things so much easier for doing the transition, like promoting a replica to be a primary and things of that nature, the clients being able to follow who the primary was. Um, because otherwise you have to rely on like elastic IPs and switching them over, or you're relying on DNS, which has a TTL associated with it. So you may take, it may take time for that to switch over, but this just made it super easy because as soon as it detects, and you may have to restart the connection, but as soon as it detects, hey, I'm no longer connected to a primary and I'm supposed to be, let me th look through my list and find who the primary is now. Or, this is the client making the determination or, hey, I'm supposed to be talking to a replica and I'm not anymore. <laughs> Suddenly it became the primary. Let me find where the replica is. Cool. So that just made things super, super easy to do. And uh, yeah, and I guess I'll save the, the other little bit of stuff <laughs> I'm working out for the project section. All right. <clears throat> so I was doing a whole lot of Still programming, but more on the prepping release side and the merge management. Somehow, our the, the release that was going out to stage for both internal and our big client, because we do kind of 
stage releases for them as well because they have their own staging and production systems. Um, somehow those got kind of out of sync and well, not somehow. I know what, what happened is I was trying to cherry pick in some things that, that this client needed because they're my primary responsibility. And somebody else needed me to fix um, an oversight that they had gotten into the staging the prior week. And they sent that to me just as I was working this other thing. So then I started working them both and just got myself all confused as to what I was cherry picking where. So I, I just, I, I made, a, I was making a mess of things. So I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. So let me, let me just back up and start over and let me do these one project at a time. After doing this 25 years, you'd think I'd know better, but I just got, you know, I was, there were so many things going on. I was like, I got to get this done. I got to get this done. And then I just made it worse. So yeah, whenever you, you say cherry pick, I'm like, Oh, uh Oh, <laughs> well, that, with that term. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually doing the GitHub, the Git cherry pick command so that I can pull just specific commits across to this stage branch. Cause yeah, but <laughs> even then I'm just kind of like, okay. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it can get complicated and we, we try to make sure that the process is simple um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but whenever I hear that, I'm like, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's because we have these multiple stage branches that that mostly have to stay in sync, but there are occasions where we need to put something in the in one stage branch that can't go in the other one yet. So. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I understand. <laughs> it's... So basically, your organization, your company, has their stage branch but this large customer has a dedicated stage branch. Right. We actually have a few large customers that like that. Yeah. And do they have their own environment as well? Like it. Yes. They, they have their, they have their own staging environment that they do all their integration testing against. um, Okay. Because they have stuff that integrates to our stuff. And so, you know, it can get the, the delivery, processes can get complex and that's one of the things that um that i'm trying to work through with this customer and internally is is better pr processes for these so that they don't get as confused um because when i came on board there was there it was a bit confusing for me to try to figure out what was going on i was like oh i can't i need i need my way of doing things (laughs) It's breaking my brain. Um, or maybe just a little bit more order than chaos. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> not, maybe not, that might be a good not thing. Not that that's it, but <laughs> well, that's kind of it. There's well, and when you're dealing with when you've got a big company dealing with another big company, they've all got their own ways of doing things. Figuring out how to get a meshed PM process going between the two is not an easy thing. I'm discovering. Um, yeah, but out of, out of curiosity, your releases, do you do many small releases or is it big releases periodically for the product? No, no, we do, we do, basically we do a, um, one week sprint development cycle and then a one week sprint QA cycle. So every week we're putting something into stage and then we, we alternate stage deploys and prod deploys. So we're pretty quick deploying and they're fairly small 
Um, but, well, when I say fairly small, fairly small for 20 or 30 engineers working on all these different products at the same time in a week. I mean, that, a lot of stuff can happen with that many people working on it, but... Well, I guess what I'm saying, do you deploy, is it deployed like multiple times per day or is it like there's just a once a week deploy type thing? Right now there's once a week. We are talking about doing um, CI, um, not CI, <clears throat> CD. We've already got a CI process. So we're talking about how to expand that to CD processes. The, the, the big stumbling block is really just that we've got a lot of different services going on and different teams working on different services. So that has to be coordinated. Um, and we got to make sure we don't step in it and go too fast. So right now it's a once a week, which is still pretty quick, but it's not a continuous deployment type scenario yet. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm actually looking forward to that because I think, honestly, that's easier. Um, but we'll see. If you're talking about number of services, I mean, I think as long as your interfaces of those services are pretty um, consistent and don't vary as much, that shouldn't help. Well, right. And, and that's, I imagine. That's one of the things we're doing is trying to make sure that we don't have... <laughs> Um, interface contracts changing or APIs changing without right. version changes and, you know, that nobody's doing breaking commits without version pathing so that we yep. can keep all that straight. So it's just, you know, it's it's kind of a a process of dotting your I's and crossing your T's to make sure that <laughs> nobody, nobody goofs it. Um, but anyway, so I've spent... A good bit of the week doing that kind of stuff and talking to the customer about still about um, trying to smooth out the process to make sure things are are nice and that we don't have you know like 7 p.m. Saturday night frantic calls because something went down because it didn't get validated right or didn't get pushed to the right place or some goofy thing like that because those are never fun. Never fun. No. Oh. <laughs> I don't want to work on Saturday, but um, anyway, all right, so on to fun stuff of the evening. So I had a, a project that I was working on for the past couple of weeks uh, on and off. I, it was one of those kind of side project skunk works things, so I couldn't put full time into it, but um Basically, what it was is we were trying to, f I was trying to come up with a way to automate our release notes based on the systems we were using. And so, uh, you know, using, we use GitHub for all our commits and our repos and stuff. And we have Airtable to log the engineering tickets and the ticket flows. And I needed to figure out a way to get all that stuff together and do differential um, release notes between tags. Because um, we just, we tag our releases, it's, you know, use normal semantic versioning and tag the releases in the git commits when it's, when a release happens. So I thought that was going to be a fairly simple and straightforward process. <laughs> 
turns out it's a convoluted mess because one of the things that we needed to do was to um be able to to break out the commit messages on on the release notes by the labels on the PRs so but the the problem is when we tag a release, so so you put up a PR, it gets approved and merged into the master branch, right? Okay. And then once you've got, once you're ready for a release, you put a tag on there, the master yeah. branch, and say, okay, this is the tag is V one point two point three, right? Yep. And you've got all these tags going along as you're doing these weekly stage releases. Once you get it to the master branch and you've got that that PR merged in it no longer actually has a link back to the PR so if I do a merge diff, uh, uh, diff if I do a diff on the master branch between these two tags I can get a list of all the commits but I have no linkage to the PR the, the PR to get its labels to figure out what label this commit should be under is is this a bug fix? Is it a new feature? Is it a documentation change? Right. So, so my first big challenge was figuring out how to get the list of commits, the diff list of commits, and still be able to connect them to the PRs to get the labels that, that belong to them. It turns out the only way you can do that is if you happen to put the PR number in your commit message, you can parse it out and then pull the PR by that number through the API and get its information. Right. So the PR is like a separate resource, but there's no connection with it to the commits after it's been merged. Correct. And that's a little bit of a pain. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Yeah. It took me a while to figure out how to get that connection back around. Now, thank God that by default, as far as I can tell, when you do a, a, a um, PR commit or a squash and merge, when you merge the PRs in, GitHub automatically puts the PR number in the commit message. It appends that onto the commit oh, message, really? okay. as far as I can tell. Um, at least across all of the, the repos that I've looked at that we're using, and there are quite a few. Um, so that seems to be a default in GitHub. I'd never really paid attention to it before because I never needed that linkage back to the PR. So, uh, you know, my my squash merges into um, master branches weren't in this complex a situation, so I really didn't care. to. The, I, I never needed to link them back to the PR. And I was using um, a different PM system to generate the release notes. Uh, but that's not Airtable isn't good at that. Um, at least not the way we're using it. Um, it could be in a different context, but how we're using it, it's not. So that was the first major hurdle. Um, so I had to I had to actually get the diffs of commits, then go through each one and parse parse the uh, PR number out, and then pull the PR information for that PR number 
and I was using the OctoKit gem to connect to um, the GitHub API. That's the Ruby gem that does a Ruby wrapper around the GitHub API. So I had to go get that, and then I had to <laughs> I had to pull the labels off of that, find the ones that were valid because we use multiple labels, but there's only a certain set that I want to pull out for the release notes and attach those in a structure to the commit message so that then I could group those into place and then shove them out through an ERD to an HTML or a markdown <clears throat> or just a straight text file. Um, so, so that was a challenge. Then we wanted to have, we wanted an internal set of release notes and an external set, an external set that's formatted that could go out to customers and an right. internal set that had the linkages embedded in them, not only to the PR, that commit, but also to the Airtable ticket. So now I had to go get the Airtable ticket associated with this commit. That... <laughs> That was a hell of a thing. So fortunately, we had been in the habit of, in our commit messages, always starting them with the ticket number. Mm -hmm. So we had like T and the number of the ticket. Right. So because there's no direct linkage between GitHub and the Airtable ticket, there's no, right. you know, I can't pull that. So... Again, I had to parse out this ticket number from the commit message, if it's there. And then I had to go through the Airtable API to find out, to find some way to get the URL I would need for that ticket. Now, the Airtable API is, how do I say this? diplomatically it's disgusting it's gross it 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 just bleh so they they don't use a normal rest pretty rest api um what they do is they have this nasty looking thing and so it's it's like the airtable.com slash app and then a bunch of random things that's i think your app part and then tbl and a bunch of random things which i think is the table you're looking for and then viw and a bunch of random things which i think is the view that you want and then rec and a bunch of random things which is your actual ticket but these aren't actually UUIDs. And you say, now with your you're saying ticket but really airtable is just like a spreadsheet on the cloud right uh, so to a point yeah but i mean you're just looking for a particular row or a cell right um conceptually essentially yes it's a little okay. little more involved than that but yeah <clears throat> at a high level that's kind of what you're doing but they've so they so instead of doing slash ticket slash ticket number which would make sense They've got all this stuff you got to do. So I've got the ticket number. So I have to go find out what the weird 
ticket thing is, the, the weird REC number is for that. And then I concatenate it to a bunch of other stuff that I have to go find. Now, fortunately, the app is always the same. That's like the customer identifier, right? So the first part of the URL is, is the customer identifier. Then the table, well, I always know I'm looking in the ticket table. So that's always the same. The view identifier, I don't understand why it's there. So I, I couldn't figure that out from their documentation. So I just took the view that I'm always looking at and, and attached <laughs> it to this URL. <laughs> okay. And then you can pull, you can look up a, you can get a ticket list and do a filter on it. So you filter where the internal identifier is the ticket number I've got, and then it passes you back a JSON blob that has this record identifier in it. And then I attach that to the end of the URL. And then I can make a link out of that. And man, I was I was I was killing myself going through that API going, why can't I find something that just says ticket slash ticket number? I don't I don't understand the concept of a of a API that looks like this. It it just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I I hate to hate on things, but oh my god, that was just disgusting. But anyway, the long and to make a long story short, too late. I know. Um, they, <laughs> I finally got all that stuff together. So now I've got a PR link and an Airtable ticket link directly with these. Things so that internal tickets, because I run into this all the time, somebody else does a ticket for my client because they're working on a team that they need something from. And I don't necessarily know what that commit message is referring to. So having the, the ticket link there is extremely helpful for me. So I can go back in and put more context in that thing, in that message before I deliver it to the customer. Right. Mm -hmm. So, this was, it, it, it's highly helpful. Um, I was able to lay it out so that I could make it extendable so that we could do other fo export formats and put it out in different ways. Um, so it, it gathers all the information together, puts it into a structure, and then you can just run that through different ERBs uh, to get whatever formats you want. Um, right, right. And so then I, I put this together. This was my very first gem that I created. After yeah. doing Ruby for 20 years, I've never actually created a gem before because I never had a reason. But I said, you know what? I think I'd just like to do that because we've got all these people in the company that are going to need to get to this thing for their repos. And the easiest thing to do would for, for them to be able to just do a gem install this. So I said, okay, I'll figure out how to do that. Turns out building a gem is really, really freaking simple. You do bundle, gem, a name, structures there, fill it out, bada bing, bada boom, gem. So, so yeah, after 20 years of rubying, I, my first ever gem.
Amazing. But that was, you know, this was a thing I was like, oh, I'll just knock this out in an afternoon. <laughs> two weeks later, I'm like, like, Tuesday, I was up till like almost 10 o'clock just banging on this thing going, I have got to get this done. I don't want to spend another day working on it. But holy crap, it was, oh. Now, presumably, this would have been easier if you used GitHub Issues as your ticket tracking. Well, yes. The company used to use GitHub Issues, but they had to move away from it um, for a number of reasons because of how... It, it, it's kind of a weird team scenario where the product team actually has a lot of technical um, technical input. So we had it, it, there was too much crosstalk and not enough project management context around uh, the GitHub issues. Um, from what I hear, this this all happened before I joined the company. Right, right, right. But um, that honestly, I would like to go back to GitHub issues because yes, that would have made this so much easier. Uh, and I I still haven't really understood their reasoning for changing. Um, but I haven't spent a lot of time trying to understand it really. I just got kind yeah, of a cursory it's also explanation. It's also interesting your ticketing system rules on Airtable because Airtable, again, my concept of that is like spreadsheet in the sky, or at least initially. And but it's really a generic tool because if you go to their website, their headline is "Connect Everything, Achieve Anything." Okay, so you do anything and everything. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it. Okay, so <laughs> it's basically a spreadsheet on steroids. Yeah, that's what it is. And honestly, I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I'm sorry to say, but I'm just not. It's I mean, I for, guess for it's a project great. management system. I mean, I guess if you're it's great if you wanted to add all the sorts of customization, but, you know, that requires a lot. of. It, and it's just surprising. You know, when you say our ticketing system is Airtable, I'm kind of like, oh, really? Because yeah. <laughs> I would expect it to be a support system, ticketing system, or whatnot, as opposed to Airtable. It, it is. It well, I mean, it, it it's also the support ticketing system. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, you know, and yeah, Airtable's a fine product, but I don't think it's the best choice for what we're trying to do with it. And so it's making me not like it because it's not a, it's not a good workflow for what we need in our organization. Which, you know, it's probably unfair to Airtable because it does a lot of stuff. And I'm sure it's very good at, at spreadsheeting. But we don't need a spreadsheet. We need a project management solution. Yeah, and maybe to do that, there's just a fair amount of work you're going to have to do to achieve that end. Right. Making it, yeah. When When we could, you know, pay for a different system that already does a lot of that. Yeah. You know, so... And it's not, you know, it's it can't do some of the other things that Airtable can do because it is constructed to be a project management system. But, you know, 
maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just a grumpy old turd and I don't like new things. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that was my huge fun project. So what did you have going on? So I'll mention a couple of things. Actually, some of them are more home slash personal. So one of the ones that I mentioned before is this ability to look up the organizations that are contacting my website um, by looking at the IP address of visitors coming there. Now you could do that if you can look at your Nginx logs and get the IP address, or you can log it through some other way through some JavaScript snippet or whatever. But once you have that, there are libraries available or even just uh, Unix-based tools that you can look up what is the organization name that owns that particular IP address. Now, again, vast majority of the time, you're probably going to be seeing ISPs as the owners of those IP address coming in because if someone's at their home, they have an internet service provider and that's the owner that's going to show there. But if it's an organization that has a domain and a lot of the organizations that I work with for my company that are my customers, they have their own dedicated uh, IP address ranges, then their organization shows up when you do these lookups. So I basically, like I mentioned, threw together a way to look them up and I'm now having it set up where on daily basis, it's going through and saying, okay, what are the IP addresses? Look up the domain and then let me know what the domain is as well as what pages they visited. Because you know if they're gonna go to the blog post, that's fine. They're probably not gonna go elsewhere, but if they, I see them go to the pricing page, to the home page, to the about page, those are triggers that, oh, or one of the product pages. Okay, they're expressing expressing interest in the product. And now I can say, hmm, this organization may be interested in something. And then I could reach out, do a cold call or something. And it's not that I'm going to find someone and then be able to sell something, but it's like, okay, someone, this organization has expressed some level of interest. Let me reach out to some of the people who I know that might have interest in our product and see, you know, strike up a conversation, see if they're looking for anything and generally how they're liking what, what tools they're using now. So I'm, you know, giving this a go, seeing how it works. So that's kind of what I've been working on as a small little project hmm. marketing wise for my, uh, for something I'm working on. The, the other area I'm looking at is actually stuff with regards to the home. <clears throat> so I've found out about a number of services that are open source that you can run yourself and they mimic some of the services that you can get from different cloud providers. So what I'm talking about is like tons of people have things like Spotify or Apple Music for Music or you have, uh, you know, people buy these VPN products, or people are using Dropbox uh, personally, you know, at, at their home to share files or whatnot. Or um, what's the other thing I was thinking of? 
um, maybe you have a security system or maybe you have some sort of automation with like you're getting some of the Google products or the Amazon products that do home automation. So when you buy these products, you know, they basically you have to buy the same products so they all integrate together. Like if you're going to get a Google thing, you need to keep with Google. If you're going to get an Amazon thing, you need to keep with Amazon. And then plus the thing about it is, is that they're sharing their data with everything else. So privacy is kind of like out the window. And for me, I'm kind of privacy focused person, but I discovered all these different open source solutions that allow you to avoid this. Hmm. So I'm kind of at the baby steps part, but I'll just mention a few services I'm looking at and saying, hmm, can I do this? So I already have a Linux file server that I use internally in my house for like putting pictures on, you know, the home videos for other files to share amongst the house, um, you know, music libraries on there. So that can be shared around the house, but with some of these tools, you can even expand it further. So I guess the first tool I'll mention here, uh, you can feel free to Google it if you want, is Home Assistant. So Home Assistant, again, it's an open source product and you can install it on a server or even something as small as a Raspberry Pi. And it enables you to control smart devices in your home. And as long as they have particular compatibilities and looking at the integrations, I mean, they integrate with alarms, binary senses, cameras, your car, uh, doorbells, fans, lights, uh, humidifiers. I mean, it's just thousands of integrations with different small devices that you can link up, you can control one-on-one, -on -one, but you can even set up uh, workflows. Or I think they, maybe they call them processes. I can't remember. Mm. But you could say like someone set it up such that, okay, the time that my daughter can use her iPad for reading is two to four. And if she uses it for playing media, fire an alert that turns the light on and off three times or something like that. So the amount of- Holy crap. I know the amount of <laughs> things you can do with this is pretty amazing. So look, I know we had planned on doing some gaming Friday night, but, but I think I'm gonna be playing with this instead. <laughs> it's holy crap, I know what I'm doing this week. So the thing, so again, I'm at just the, the baby steps of it because it's a huge thing. It's like how much personal time do I want to spend on this? But privacy is pretty important to me. So I'm actually evaluating this to seeing what's possible. The other benefit is that, you know, it does take some, of course, technical knowledge to, to set this up and do it, which I have. Um, but the other benefit I'm looking at is, gee, if I switch to using this kind of stuff, I might be able to eliminate, if I decide to get up things like music subscriptions or, or stuff like that, let, lets me see some stuff on the fly, if I can access my music library while remote, 
and different things like that, I might be able to eliminate $100 a month in different services I'm using. You know, because anytime you're getting some of the, even especially this home automation stuff, you know, it's calling back to the mothership and, you know, you got to pay monthly fees for different types of services that do that a lot. Wow, this inter this interfaces with crap, Alexa, Google Assistant, yeah. Google Cast, Philips Hue, Sonos. Good grief. It's like an all-in-one remote. Yeah. I want. <laughs> you can have for freeze. <laughs> can has please. <laughs> so so that's one thing I'm looking at that I'm kind of like. Okay, this is interesting. The other one that I've kind of learned about is OpenWRT. So OpenWRT is a Linux operating system and it targets embedded devices. Now, what's interesting about this is basically they're targeting like all these old routers to Basically, you can replace their firmware with this open source operating system. So, like, again, even the routers that you buy today, they call back to the mothership. And what kind of data are they sending back to Linksys, TP Link, you know, whatever it is? I have no idea. And how are they being updated? And, you know, you don't know. Um, but what's interesting about this is that this is an open source operating system that you can install on an existing device you have. And it can do VPNs and firewalls and you know everything else. It's just you're replacing the firmware with this open source version that's not going to call back to you know some big company. So I'm looking at this as like, well, I got an old router sitting around that Basically, it stopped working because the software started having issues. So I'm like, well, gee, I can install this on it. And will this, you know, work? So I'm going to experiment using uh, OpenWRT. Yeah. And see if, if you, that works. If you booger it all up, no loss. Cause, yeah. Cause I got a, the replacement router I'm using now. So yeah. So I'm going to try that to see, you know, what, what this experience is like. Huh. The, other ones, other things I'm looking at is that like OpenWRT does do a firewall, but I found um, there's a few other open source firewalls. One of them is PFSense. Uh, they have the appliances that you can buy from them, but they also have just a pure um, open source solution for firewalls that you can install on your own system. So you can get super sophisticated if you want to do something like that. Or even WireGuard, which does a VPN tunnel. So again, that's fully open source and you can use it without, you know, every other YouTube channel and their brother and their sister is trying to sell VPN services. <laughs> Whereas you could use the free source WireGuard to kind of roll, roll your own if you want. Yeah. I know there used to be one called, is it OpenVPN? something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's that's another that's another one. Yeah. But last I saw that didn't Oh wait. Well, OpenVPN. 
either you have to pay for it now or it's defunct. I there was some reason I I was looking for one like a year or so ago and I could not find that one didn't seem to be a valid option. Yeah, I can't remember. Reason. There's another one that because it used to be you could maybe it wasn't OpenVPN, but there's one called OPN Sense. That's I've seen as an alternative to PF Sense. I think they branched at some point, but hmm. I don't even know what OPN means though. Other then... people's network. <laughs> Or maybe it's open, but they didn't put the E. I don't know. Yeah, Weird. that's probably what it is. Wow. You've had a fun week. Well, this is this is not my well, work week. This is yeah. like my nights and weekends. Just happened to come up on a video, and then this whole world of possibilities <laughs> opened up. You went right down the rabbit hole. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, but that's what I'm saying on baby step. I mean, for me to do that it's going to take me a lot of time because i'm only going to be looking at this when i have brain capacity at the end of the day or on the weekends or whatnot so there's two other services i'll mention here that that are pretty interesting one is it's kind of like a dropbox replacement although it looks to be doing a lot more there's one is called next cloud and the other one is called oh, what is it own cloud, OWN cloud. And again, those were the same product that then branched. It's like the founder started it, got some investment and then had disagreements. And then he started NextCloud. <laughs> so NextCloud looks to be the more popular one in open source. Like if you look on the app store for like at least the iPhone, it has tons more downloads compared to the client for own cloud. Um, and I think it's supposed to be more open source. Um, but a lot of these solutions, it's kind of hard to install them. It's like, because they're full systems and like some of the deployments, like for NextCloud, it's like here, do it as a virtual machine. So it's like the deployment is as a virtual machine, which is a little bit odd, or there's, or deploy these multiple Docker containers, or here's one Docker container way to install it, but it's in beta and highly risky. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Colin says, OPN, OWN, I'm seeing a pattern. <laughs> yeah. I hope the next one in the list isn't PWN. Then I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's supposed to be basically web accessible ways to get to your files. Although NextCloud also seems to do like calendaring and contact lists as well. Again, that's that's a whole big, huge product. I haven't really, you know, and I haven't installed any of this stuff yet. It's I'm just opening my eyes to it and kind of evaluating. Well, this is and, something I'd like to kind of check out. I may do a little more research on this myself because I never have really liked Dropbox very much. I've had to use it a number of times, but I'm not, I, I, I don't know. It just doesn't feel nice for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I use it for my corporate my company stuff, but like, I'm not paying for it personally, uh, or I don't have any personal stuff. Cause I mean, whenever I go away from home, I don't, haven't really had a big use case for it, but. It's just like always felt a bit clunky to me. 
I don't know. Again, maybe that's just because I'm an old grumpy turd that doesn't like <laughs> new things. <laughs> so anyway, the last last one I'll mention is Navadrome, N-A-V-I-D-R-O-M-E dot org. And that is basically your music collection, any elect music you have. It basically puts it on the web for you to access it. So you can access it from a web browser within your house or through, you could set up through a VPN. <laughs> Apology for my dog. <laughs> or you could do it through the internet, as long as you set up things securely, of course. But it also has streaming clients. So Aww. apparently there are open source streaming clients you can install on your phone that connect to your own music, co music collection. Ah, oh. stink. So you know, I'm looking at this like right now. I'm currently paying for Apple Music, and I really like you know being able to just say some, play some artist or whatever, and have it play. But it's like, hmm. I mean, I I have a, my apologies. I have a ton of, I have a ton of music, and. Could I just buy a few more albums myself and move to something like this and save, you know, the what is it, 15 bucks a month for the family plan or whatever we have? Oh, yeah. So that looks that's another one I'm gonna have to investigate for the streaming stuff because the setup I've got to get, you know, music into the intro plus bringing you in and me in and all this stuff to bring it together for the is is the sound part of it is complex. Um, and part of that is because I'm using pretzel and having to pump that through a virtual. When you have thing. to use a piece of software <laughs> called pretzel, yeah, right? that's the first sign of a problem. <laughs> yeah. So I may, I may check into this and see if I can find, if this might be a better solution. Cause it's, Oh my God, it's setting up complicated stream. So, uh, and, and when I say streaming, what I mean is, um, you know, you have an app on your device right. to play music. Yeah. yeah. And it basically streams the music from your server at your home to your phone or whatever. Right. But what I'm wondering is, see, because I've got a, um, I've got a tablet sitting here in front of me that I use as the stream controller because uh, mm -hmm. I got TP-Link on there. So I'm wondering if I can put the... Um, the stream software on here and control the music stuff through this because it's right in front of me rather than having stuff on a third monitor over here that I have to keep hold of. And I just, it seems like that would be way better. Maybe. So, huh. I'm glad we did this show. I learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I've got all kinds of neat toys to go play with now. Yeah. So not, not necessarily programming business 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 but it's just basically these are little projects that i've started looking at i'm like all right in my part-time you know when i'm not working i'm yeah. kind of looking into this stuff oh that's that's fun oh i'm well right after the show i'm gonna be playing <laughs> with that stuff now make myself a super giant house remote 
Um, so one thing else I did want to mention tonight because I ran across it um, this week and it is already making a fairly significant difference in gem upgrades and that's a, there's a thing called gem compare. Um, I would I would highly recommend checking this out because what it does is it you can install this gem and then gem compare two versions of gems and it'll show you what the differences are so you can look at it before you actually update the gem to see if you might be getting ready to cause yourself some problems on small projects that's probably not a big deal but when you've got big monolithic services and many of them interacting knowing that stuff ahead of time is a big deal so um you know it check out gem compare it's, it's quite a helpful thing and being as it's free i really like the price <laughs> is uh, that gem gem hyphen compare yes okay uh and i put a link in the chat if you've if the audience wants to check that out. In fact, I've been putting links in the okay. chat for all the things that you've been talking about, so. Okay. Um, anyway, hey, that was a fun show. We'll have to do something like that again sometime. Um, but next week we'll get back into our organized, structured, boring stuff. No, not boring. I like the other stuff, but this was fun. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, if you did, please make sure to like and subscribe, or if you're on Twitch, throw us a follow. All that stuff is free. Just mash all the buttons and ding all the bells. Join us every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern live for more Dev Talk. Also, tell your friends, because we know you're awesome people and you have lots of them. Bring them with you. Uh, next week, we have a user-requested topic. We're going to talk about where you should put business logic in a Rails structure. Can't put it in the models. Don't want fat models. Can't put it in the controllers. Don't want fat controllers. Where should you put it? Uh, so we'll be talking about that next week. Um, if you have a topic that you'd like to see on the show, please do put it in the comments below, and we will probably... Um, put, put, Colin, put it on in that there, the model. No, don't do that. Anyway, we'll talk about that next week. Um, please put your suggestions for the show in the, in the comments below. We will take a look at those. We read every comment. Uh, if you'd like to listen to us, you can find a version of this on podcasts everywhere that podcasts live. You can also visit our website, rubberduckdevshow.com and find all our podcasts and videos there and also sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to keep up with the latest stuff from, from this grumpy old man, you can follow us on Twitter at, at DuckyDevShow. That would be these grumpy old men? Yeah, these grumpy. Well, you know, I didn't want to speak for you. You seem to be a happy guy oh, most I'm of old. the time. No, well, no, no, I'm old and grumpy. Uh, so Your cloud service is taking my data. I don't like it. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Just... The Jira thing this week. Oh boy, that's a whole show. Anyway, um, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed that. We'll see you next week. And until then, happy programming. Happy programming. Mm -hmm.